Today's scripture will be in Matthew 5, 4 and 5. It says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. That says the word of the Lord. Thanks, Ello, for the reading. It's great to see so many of you here at Church at Five on this Sunday evening. Well, you guys seem to be allergic to the front three rows. It's a bit strange. It's like, <laughs> come on. Um, yeah, front three rows are awesome. Yeah, all right, let's move on. Um, yeah, awesome to see you guys here. I hope you're going well. If you had a great day, doing well. It's great to, uh, I think it's great to finish Sunday out by having fellowship with the Lord's people and coming and worshiping Him. And, uh, yeah, just being encouraged to go out before the week starts again uh, tomorrow morning. Well, um, thanks, Ello, for the reading. And we're in the Beatitudes. We're in the Sermon on the Mount. We're in our new series here, uh, From the Mount. Let me ask you a question at the beginning. Uh, I know that most of you, if you're Christians, will have read through the Gospels at various times in your life. But I think often the way we read through the Gospels as Christians is we tend to read through individual episodes, maybe in a reading plan or whatever, or we're we're studying a text or we hear a message, but we don't often get the whole full sweep of the Gospels in one go. So have you thought, have you thought about great themes and motifs that can be found in the Gospels as they portray Jesus' life and ministry? Have you thought about that? We read of the early Christians, the early church, as they came together week by week to hear read. Obviously, they didn't have their own personal Bibles, so they had to hear it read at church as they heard the Gospels read and reread the life of Christ, the life of Jesus. They recognized two great themes or motifs from Jesus' life and ministry. And it's interesting what they recognized and what these tell us about who we are as human beings. Firstly, as they heard the Gospels read and reread again, they read of Jesus' healing and cleansing ministry. Jesus healed the sick, didn't He? Most people, even if they are not Christians and know very little about Christianity, they would, they would, they would have heard of Jesus as, as known for His miracles of healing. Jesus healed the sick of, of diseases, but He also cleansed people of unclean spirits, of demonic spirits. And the early church recognized this wasn't just arbitrary, this wasn't just Jesus trying to show off His great power in some way that would impress the people of the time, it wasn't just designed to superficially amaze them, but they were, rather these these miracles, these healings were pointing to something profound in us, in humanity, namely, we are sick and we need healing, we need a doctor. Jesus Himself said it, didn't He? He said, "I, I didn't come for Uh, the righteous but for sinners. It's not the the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. We all of us, what we get from seeing this in Jesus' ministry is we all of us suffer from a spiritual sickness, from sin, and we are unable to cure ourselves. We need Christ because Jesus Christ is our healer and our doctor. 
our spiritual healer and our spiritual doctor. If we continue through the Gospels or if we read through the Gospels, yes, we, we read that Jesus spends much time in table fellowship. That's been a focus of a lot of preaching and ministry in the last 15 years, rediscovering the idea of having fellowship together over a meal. And yes, Jesus often is reported to have withdrawn away from the crowd alone and spent time in prayer to His heavenly Father. But I think that those are not the great emphases or motifs of Jesus' ministry. Next to His ministry of healing and cleansing, the early church recognized Jesus' teaching ministry as the second great motif. And again, they recognized this must mean something. Why would Jesus devote so much of His ministry, of His life, to preaching and teaching? Was it just because He liked the sound of His own voice? No. No, it points to, to something profound in us, in humanity, namely that we are ignorant. We lack wisdom. We lack wisdom from above. We lack wisdom from God. We don't know how to live rightly, how to live toward God and our neighbor toward God and our fellow human being. We need a teacher, and that teacher is Jesus Christ. And it's interesting in that respect to listen to what Matthew records at the conclusion of this great sermon on the mount in Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. And I'm not sure when we'll reach this text as the sermon text here. It'll be interesting to see how things go there in the sermon plan. But this is what, Je this is what Matthew records at the end of this sermon. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the whole sermon, the crowd were amazed at His teaching, because He taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. I find that a very interesting statement. Jesus didn't teach like the teachers of the law, because they were authoritative figures. They were authorized teachers, but Jesus didn't teach like them, and yet the crowd were amazed at His teaching and His authority. Just as Jesus' healing, every time Jesus performed a healing or a cleansing, He touched the person who being healed at their point of need to bring about restoration, so Jesus' teaching is not scattered. It speaks to the heart, to our point of need, to what we need to hear. Again and again in this sermon, we'll hear in coming weeks and months, Jesus will say, you've heard it said by the teachers of the law, but I tell you this, this is what you need to hear, this is my divine teaching, the wisdom from above from God. And the crowd were amazed and astonished at this teaching and at Jesus' authority. And Christ's teaching remains astonishing and amazing, even for us today. It remains authoritative. It, it remains the divine wisdom, wisdom from God from above, that we all of us lack. We don't have it in and of ourselves we need it. We need to receive it. And so, the question for us here, each one of us here, and I ask myself this question in the preparation as well, is do we recognize that? Do we recognize, each one of us, that without God, without Christ, we're all of us sick, spiritually sick, sick with sin and in need, in desperate need of divine healing? And do we realize that without God and without Jesus Christ, we are all of us ignorant and foolish and in need in desperate need of Jesus' divine wisdom and divine teaching. In other words, the question for us as we come to the second message here in the Sermon on the Mount is, will we have, will you have Jesus Christ as your healer, as your doctor, as your teacher, 
as your Savior, as your Lord? The reason I ask that is this is a crucial question to ask as we continue in the Sermon on the Mount. Because in the sermon, as Brandon showed us last Sunday evening, Jesus gives us divine wisdom as He sets out the pattern of living in His kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. This pattern of living then, as we learned last Sunday, and I agree, is, is for all Christians. It's for you, it's for me, it's for all of us who would follow Christ and be His disciples. This sermon that we'll go through these coming weeks and months here at Church at Five is for all of Jesus' disciples. It's the pattern of life for the kingdom that Jesus gives us here. And so if we don't desire Jesus as our spiritual healer, doctor, teacher, Savior, and Lord, in other words, if we don't want to be His disciples, then we will wash up against this sermon and it will break us. Like the surf, think of that picture of a surf pounding a wooden ship to pieces on the rocks. That's what this sermon will do to us if we will not have Christ as our doctor, teacher, Lord, and Savior. But if we do desire, however imperfectly, to be Jesus' disciples, then this sermon, though it will challenge and amaze us, will be to us words of life and blessing. And that's why Jesus begins this sermon with the Beatitudes. These nine Beatitudes illustrate beautifully the character of a true disciple. They help us to see if we're ready to hear Jesus' teaching for disciples. And so it's really important, I want to emphasize again, um, for this week as well, what Brandon said last week, if we come to this sermon and think we need to fulfill it or do it or live it in order that by our efforts somehow we therefore become a disciple, then we've missed the point and the sermon will break us. But rather it's when we place our trust in Christ alone and by God's grace alone that we're changed and filled with the Holy Spirit. And with the Spirit and by grace we'll find joy and power to live as Jesus teaches us. Not that we'll reach perfection, this side of Jesus' return. This sermon, and I find that challenging, and I encourage you to think about this as we go through, will always have more to teach us until we stand face to face with Jesus. And so these Beatitudes, they give us the mark of true disciples. They follow on from each other. So the one we heard last week precedes the one we heard today, and the one we heard today follows on from last week. We heard last week that true disciples are those who are poor in spirit, who recognize they're empty, they have no good thing in themselves but desire to be filled by God and by the Holy Spirit. To such disciples belongs the kingdom of heaven. How then does Jesus Christ, our teacher, continue to describe the character of true disciples? That's our text this evening, and Ella read it for us. And the first part says this, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. You know, this cannot be this cannot mean that Jesus is placing a blessing on all forms of mourning, of sorrow. If we, if we just take away the blessing at the end, uh, sorry, uh, the, the, the consequence at the end, they shall be comforted, then we would just have um, a kind of an aphorism, happy are those who are sad, which sounds like Gnostic nonsense from the Gospel of Thomas. No, we need to remember this as we go through the Beatitudes. These are spiritual words, words aren't they? Addressing spiritual realities. This blessing then is for those who spiritually mourn, not necessarily for anybody who might be mourning the loss of a, a loved one, but for those who spiritually mourn. The idea of mourning here is one from the Old Testament. And what we can basically sum it up is, is this, it's a godly sorrow, and that's important, that word godly, we'll come to that in one second, it's a godly sorrow over sin. It's being upset sad, mourning, grieving over sin, specifically over our own sins, 
but in the Old Testament was also a grieving over the sins of the nation of Israel, which had led to God's righteous judgment coming upon that nation. So look with me as we think about mourning for a moment. Look with me at 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. And there we read, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. This is important. We have to understand there is such a thing as unspiritual, worldly mourning. And we, we who desire to be disciples of Christ, we want to guard against that false, unspiritual mourning. We don't want to be false mourners. We want to be true spiritual mourners. There are three examples here of false mourning that I think it would be helpful to look at briefly so that we can be aware of what it is we're guarding against. Firstly, Judas Iscariot, the disciple who betrayed Jesus, is an example of a false mourner. Matthew 27, 3 through 5, we read these words. When Judas, who had betrayed Jesus, saw that he was condemned, Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse, and he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. So he was full of mourning, and he recognized he'd sinned. What's that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Jesus, so Judas, sorry, Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. This is false mourning, and this is mourning that leads to death. Judas, Judas, sorry, this is not a good faux pas to make, is it? Judas was seized with remorse and mourning over what he'd done. He regretted what he'd done, but it was worldly mourning that he engaged in that led him to death. The comparison is a helpful one. Peter denied Jesus. Peter betrayed Jesus, but he was restored because he loved Jesus. He desired Christ, and he knew only in Jesus is there hope of restoration. Peter was the one who had said to Lord Jesus, where else should we go? Only you have words of eternal life. Judas gave himself over to despair, self-loathing. He had no love for Christ, and so he refused to see that only in Christ is their hope. Indeed, he let, himself, he let himself into a sense of self-reliance that he would pay the penalty for his mistake. And so he went out and hanged himself. False mourning. Second example. And so many of us fall into this trap. Look, let's look at the example of Cain right from the beginning of the Scriptures who has gone down into history as the first murderer. He killed his brother Abel. In Genesis 4, verses 13 and 14, we read, Cain said to the Lord, after the Lord had confronted him about the killing of his brother, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment that you've given me, Lord, is more than I can bear. Today you're driving me from the land, I'll be hidden from your presence, I'll be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. This is Cain's response. Cain didn't mourn over his sin, there was no remorse there for him having taken away the life of his brother, having murdered a human being, having sinned against the image of God by taking his brother's life. Cain merely mourns over the punishment that God gave him for this sin. He's not concerned with what he actually did, he's concerned with the punishment that he got because he was caught. This is false mourning. This is false mourning that doesn't lead to repentance and salvation, but in fact leads to death. And we see that with what happens to Cain and his descendants if you read 
in Genesis. And thirdly, third example of false mourning, again, something that we can fall into ourselves, something I know that I've fallen into before as well. This is the religious hypocrisy style of mourning, as evidenced by the scribes and Pharisees in the days of Jesus. In Matthew 6, verse 16, Jesus warns His disciples and He says this, when you fast, and fasting was a a practice that was often associated with showing remorse for sin. When you fast, do not look somber, there it is, mourning, somber, grief. Don't look somber as the hypocrites do when they fast, for they disfigure their faces so that everyone can see there's something wrong, to show others that they're fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received, the hypocrites have received their reward in full. Hypocrites love external show, but it's all pretend, it's not real, and it's not from the heart. This too is false mourning, and I I know, maybe you can think of an example in your own life too, where where we put on a show, but it's not really coming from the heart. We affect to be sorry, we affect to mourn for what has happened or what we've done, but it doesn't really come from the heart. We simply do it for the external show, to maybe to placate, placate other people. Certainly from raising children, I can say that this is something that I observe in the young, this kind of hypocritical mourning. False unspiritual mourning, we're warned here, leads to death, it leads away from Christ because it leads us ultimately to self-reliance. Judas relied upon himself to deal with the issue that he caused. Self-righteousness, Cain had absolutely no remorse or mourning for what he'd actually done. He was only concerned with himself, and it leads to rank hypocrisy. We, we, if we be disciples of Jesus, we don't want to deceive ourselves and harden our hearts with false mourning. So we have to guard against worldly mourning. We have to guard against that. We have to ask the Lord to, as David did in the Psalms, to to test, test me, show me if I'm on a wrong path here, Jesus. But I think there's another warning that it would be wise for me to mention at this point. We must also be careful not to harden our hearts by rejecting mourning altogether. You see, the world, our society, and it's understandable, the world has always sought to keep mourning away, to keep mourning at arm's length, to promote fun and and happiness and joviality. And for that reason, our world and our culture are full of entertainment. They're full of ways to distract ourselves and and pass the time and put away thoughts of of death or of mourning or of the finitude of human existence. Our culture does know grieving. We know how to grieve in our culture, but certainly no longer over sin. The idea of somebody writing a newspaper article describing them, you know, grieving over their own sin would be very strange in our culture. But rather, our culture knows grieving or mourning as a sort of cathartic cleansing experience and and building up self-realization and maybe dealing with outside tragedy. I also don't think it's too harsh or unfair to to criticize the superficiality of much of particularly evangelical Christian worship in these last decades. You can go to many churches and you could come away thinking that the natural Christian attitude in worship and in life, in fact, all the time is just to be happy, happy, happy all the time smile on your face all the time. I think it's important to think about Jesus 
blessing here in the Beatitudes carefully, if we don't mourn, if we don't mourn, then we miss out on the blessing of God's comfort. It's those who mourn who are blessed, for they shall be comforted. So if we don't mourn, if we push away mourning, if we try and be superficially happy all the time, we actually miss out on the blessing of experiencing God's comfort when we mourn for our mourning. So how can we tell? How can we tell what godly sorrow is, what godly mourning is? I think we all know the answer to this, but let me say three things, because this is challenging. This is where the Sermon on the Mount really starts to rubber hits the road, hits us where it hurts, hits us at our point of need, what we need to hear from Christ our teacher. Godly mourning is a mourning that is in our hearts, a sorrow in our hearts out of love for God. So we mourn over what grieves God, what offends and upsets God. We experience that in our, in our lives, don't we? When we, there's, a, there's a person close to us, maybe a family member, and you think, I really love my mom so much, and when I see something happen to my mom, maybe she's devastated by a friend who betrays her, then I mourn with her because I can see how upset she is. That kind of mourning. We mourn because we love God so much, and we love God for who He is. We mourn over things that grieve God's heart. We mourn over things that grieve God's heart. In the Psalms, we read this, it says, streams of tears flow from my eyes, for your law, God, is not obeyed. I can see your law being trampled all day long, and I know how that must grieve your heart, God, and I grieve with you. I mourn with you. So, godly mourning out of love for God mourns over what grieves God. Gets a bit closer here. Godly mourning mourns over our own sin, over your own sin, over my own sin. It's not that we mourn over the consequences of getting caught or what happens when there's a, you know, disagreement or a quarrel, when the, the consequences of the sin become clear. It's not that we mourn particularly or, in, or firstly over those, it's that we mourn over our own sin. that we're willing not to push things away and to make excuses and to blame others, but we're willing to take ownership and responsibility and mourn over our sinfulness, our wrong desires, wrong decisions, wrong actions, wrong words. And the third thing I think that needs to be mentioned, again, this this hits close to the bone. We don't like admitting our sin. We don't like admitting we're wrong. And so sometimes we try and take, um, we try and, um, take comfort in admitting general failures. You know, I, yeah, I'm a failure. I'm a, I'm a weak human being. We're all human. We all make mistakes. We all have weaknesses. I admit those. I admit I make mistakes. And we try and take comfort in that to push away the particularity, the specificity of what we've done wrong. So, godly mourning mourns over specific, particular sins, not over general sin or general sinfulness, but particular sins. It mourns over the fact that I've lied, I've cheated, I've given in to envy or lust or temptation or gossip or slander, specific sins. 
A godly mourning, that's the wonderful promise here in 2 Corinthians 7, 10, leads to salvation, leads to repentance unto salvation. That's important. One commentator says this, quote, conviction, conviction here of sin, conviction must of necessity precede conversion. A real sense of sin must come before there can be a true joy of salvation. I think that's helping us to understand this beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's the, the sense of sin has to come before there can be true joy of salvation. The mourning over sin has to come before there can be comfort. So if we take this, take this back now to the context of the Beatitudes, the marks of true discipleship that Jesus gives us at the beginning of this great Sermon on the Mount, there's no discipleship. This is important to say. It's challenging, but it's true. There's no discipleship, no Christianity without conversion to Christ without a change of direction, a change of life. And there's no conversion to Christ and joy of salvation in Him without first experiencing conviction of sin. And conviction of sin, we could describe that as godly mourning, sorrow unto repentance, that we mourn how we've offended God. We've sinned against His glory. We understand the beauty of God's holiness. We sang about it before, weren't those fantastic songs that we sang? The beauty of God's holiness, we understand the beauty of God's holiness, we understand God's hatred of sin, its rebelliousness, its arrogance, its evil, its sinfulness. We mourn over our sin, we own it, we take responsibility, we don't blame the circumstances or the past or other people, it's our sin. Jesus told us this in Matthew 15, 18 through 20, He said, so things that come out of a person's mouth that come from the heart, and these are what defile them. So out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. So mourning is not affecting piety or a long face or even overindulging in emotion. It's being cut to the heart at our sin, at our offending against an all-good, all-glorious, all-satisfying God. I've often thought this over the years, and I want to cultivate this more in my own inner life. I think it, I think it works like this. The more, the more you perceive the greatness, power, infiniteness, glory, majesty, and goodness of God, the sharper that is in focus, the more you'll mourn the sin that separates you from such a God or that mars a relationship with such a God. I think it's fair to say that those who don't take sin seriously don't take God seriously. So there's also a godly mourning for others. Those who mourn over their own sins, as one writer says, cannot fail to see the hardness around us, both in the church and in our culture. And that means, as we vote today in Germany for a new federal government, I think it's fair to say that true reformation of our society and our nation cannot come through political means. Constitutions and courts and, and policies may definitely bring benefits and protections to people, but our God is the Lord of history and God is not mocked. What we sow, we will reap, and that goes for individuals just as much as for nations. And as long as our society refuses 
individually and corporately to recognize Jesus as Lord and therefore turn and repent and mourn for their sin, then true reformation and renewal will remain elusive. Nations who are slaves to sin are not free peoples. So we, if we are disciples of Christ, we need to preach the gospel of Jesus, the gospel that Jesus is Lord to every creature, clearly, openly, full of joy, with no shame, praying for God to be gracious and give us success. Why? Because the good news and the promise that Jesus gives us here in this beatitude is that blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are you if you repent of your sin, if you mourn over your sin. You shall be comforted. There's the promise. When we mourn over our sin, when we allow ourselves to be convicted by the Holy Spirit, then we may be comforted by the great and glorious news of the gospel. When we mourn over our sin, the Lord Jesus is revealed to us by the Holy Spirit as perfect satisfaction for our sin. Through the Holy Spirit, when we mourn over our sin, we see that Christ has died for our sins and is standing as our advocate in the presence of God. We see in Christ that Christ is the perfect provision that God has made, and we may be comforted. This is the astounding thing, I think, about the Christian life. Our sorrow leads to joy. There may be pain in the night, but joy comes in the morning. And in fact, without sorrow, there is no joy. Let me leave us with a word of hope as we conclude this message with the next beatitude. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. As I said before, each beatitude follows from the one before. It's truly the poor in spirit who will mourn, and as those who mourn for their sin, who see things as they really are between God and man, and therefore trust in the merits of Christ, they who are then the meek. What is meekness? Meekness, I think it's important to say, is not weakness or shyness or being reserved or quiet. Again, we're not talking about a character trait, a natural character trait, we're talking about a spiritual quality. Leon Morris says this, commentator, quote, meekness is quite compatible with great strength and ability as humans measure strength. But whatever strength or weakness the meek, the, or weakness the meek person has is accompanied by humility and a genuine dependence on God. Or I love this definition from an unknown early church writer. They write, quote, I think this is profound. The meek person is more content to endure an, an offense than to commit one. The meek person is more endure, sorry. The meek person is more content to endure an offense than to commit one. It goes on, even as weeds are never lacking in a field, provokers are never lacking in the world. Therefore, that person is truly meek who when he or she has been offended, neither does evil back nor even thinks of doing it. That's not weakness, that's strength. It's the quality of being strong enough that when we suffer an offense, that we refrain from and choose not to assert ourselves by getting back, but rather we humbly rely on God. It's strength that comes from fully depending on God. That's what meekness is, and the meek shall inherit the earth massive promise that Jesus makes here is that such as these, 
true disciples, poor in spirit, recognize they're empty, they need filling, mourn over their sin, they grieve because they've offended God, and they desire to be in right relationship with Him, who are therefore meek, strong in trusting themselves to God and not asserting themselves and looking after their own interests, these will know great comfort. To these belong the kingdom of heaven. Indeed, they will inherit the whole earth. This is not a go to heaven when you die kind of promise. Yes, each of the promises in these Beatitudes will only be fully realized at the return of Christ when He comes to inaugurate His kingdom. That's true. But there's also an element here of the already, not yet. It's not that we have to wait until Jesus Christ comes again before we are comforted. And similarly, it's not that we have to wait until Jesus Christ comes again before we start to see the fulfillment of this promise to the meek. Not yet in full, but already in part. This is why I wanted to finish with this as a message of hope. As we mourn over our own sin and experience the comfort when Jesus keeps His promise and we are comforted, and when we therefore go forward and proclaim this gospel, trusting in these promises, we can say that the best days, the best days, I believe this, of the Christian church, of the people of Christ, lie ahead of us, and there'll be glorious days indeed. As Jesus spoke through Isaiah of the Messiah Jesus in Isaiah 49 verse 6, we read these words. Think of the trajectory here. The Lord says, it's too small a thing for you, Messiah, to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob, to bring back those of Israel I have kept. It's not enough, Jesus, for you to be the Messiah of Israel. I will make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach where? To the ends of the earth. It will happen. This is God's purpose. It is happening right now, really small and quietly as the, as the yeast works its way through the dough, as the little seed grows up to become the largest tree in the garden. It's happening now. And with our eyes and hearts on the Beatitudes, let's remember that the, the meek won't inherit the earth by way of conquest, carnal, earthly, or political means. I remember seeing a joke one time saying, you know, we're the meek. What do we want? The earth. When do we want it? Now. That's not how it's going to work. But it will happen because the earth, because the Lord has determined that He shall bring salvation to the ends of the earth, and to those who trust in Him, He will give His kingdom gladly. We finish with this quote from Psalm 22, verses 27 to 28. All the ends of the earth will remember, will remember, and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before Him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and He rules over the nations. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Amen? Amen.